Hey church, can you believe it? We are in week four of our Advent series. Christmas is a few days away. The new year is upon us very soon. And we are going to be looking in John chapter 1, verse 14 through 16 in our series, Light in the Darkness. And so if you have a Bible at home, you can turn there, John chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. You can always read on the screen below. Here's what God's Word says to us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is He of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For, the, for, the, for from His fullness we have all received grace and upon grace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, one of the things I'm, I'm constantly reminded of in this season, in this time, is the wonder that children have during Christmas. I have a four and a half year old, and so the wonder is real. My son will go up to the tree, and we have a, a few presents around the tree, and he'll pick up a box and he'll shake it, and he'll listen, and he'll feel the weight, and he'll try to imagine what is in the box, what is in that wrapped present. So much wonder, so much joy, so much excitement. I'm sure you remember that too as a kid, picking up the boxes and trying to figure out what is it? Is it the toy that you want? Is it something you never imagined? So much wonder during this time. And I think for many of us, that wonder begins to fade over time. I talked about that in the very beginning of this Advent series, that the, the magic of Christmas uh, eventually becomes lost on us, and we try to rekindle it in so many different ways. And I think for many people, Christmas becomes more about tradition than wonder. Christmas becomes more about a fairy tale story than an actual world-shattering event. That Christmas becomes about having that holiday spirit instead of the Christmas spirit, the spirit of Christ. And I hope today as we look into God's Word, you see that Christmas is full of wonder and that you Come to find that your God is in fact wonderful and should bring about awe and wonder in your life. See, that trajectory of us kind of losing touch with the wonder of Christmas has been, you know, in motion for many, many, many years. And that it's not just for Christmas, it's just with the entirety of the Christian faith. Fifty years ago, there was a controversial magazine cover with Time magazine. And here's what it said. It said, is God dead? Time magazine, is God dead? And what was so controversial about that cover was that many of the people that were saying God is dead were coming from within the church. They were professors of scripture. They were, they were theologians who went from believing in God to believing in nothing, 
And they were saying that we believe that God here in America is dead or maybe on his way to dying. There was a, a prominent theologian who went from believing in God to believing in nothing that rewrote Psalm 23. And I want to read you an excerpt from what he said. Here's, here's what he writes from Psalm 23. He was our guide in our stay. He walked with us beside still waters. He was our help in ages past. He is gone. He is stolen by darkness. Heaven is empty. That last line. He is gone. He is stolen by darkness. Heaven is empty. That question was ringing in this society, in our culture, in churches. Is God dead? That has begun to evolve and take shape, and many of you have asked that same question. Maybe you still are. Certainly, we know many people that feel as if God is gone, covered in darkness. But there's a new question that has come out of that question that we are asking now in 2020, which is this. Is man, is mankind lost? Are we lost? And I think we feel that more than ever now because there's been this focus on individuality and on cultivating your own purpose and on crafting your own vision for your life. And all of that focus on the self has led so many of us to question our purpose. Do we have a purpose? What is our vision? Because everything has been thrown up and thrown off in 2020 that we struggled to understand that. Is mankind lost? What are we doing? What is our purpose? Where are we going? Kind of feels like for many of us, we're wandering the wilderness of life. We're looking for an oasis. We can't find one. Sometimes we think we see one and we start running towards it only to find that we were looking at a mirage. Is mankind lost? Are we lost? What are we doing? What is the state of things? Where are we going? And we are grasping for hope in so many different places. We're looking for hope everywhere. We've lost all of our wonder because many of us believe God is dead and many people assert that you know, God is covered in darkness and he is gone and I don't know what my purpose is and I don't see any vision for my life. And so we're grasping for hope in places that are hopeless. We're looking to flawed leaders and broken institutions and debatable truth claims to give us some sense of hope, grasping for it. No wonder we are in this place because we have no wonder at all. And I was reading John chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, and feeling as if maybe we are, in a sense, recapitulating, which was the very culture and society that this text was written in. The kind of people that John, the author, is writing to, in many ways, a lot like us. John writes here in verse 14 this shocking and controversial claim. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory, 
as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Scandalous. And this was scandalous because the the Greek culture that formed the foundation of the Roman Empire, it's a Greco-Roman culture and society, the Greeks formed this bedrock to society that believed that flesh was flawed and corrupted. And the spiritual realm was completely separate from the earthly realm. That the divine would never mix with the flesh or the world. They're two completely different realities. This formed the bedrock of spiritual belief, cultural practices, social understanding. The divine and the flesh and the world were completely separate realities. In fact, the philosophers wrote much about this. They always had their head in the clouds. You've probably heard that expression before. Their head in the clouds because their goal and their desire and inclination was to think and to dream and to philosophize about things that were in another realm that were not reflected in this realm. And so John here says, the Word, the Logos, the Divine has been made flesh. Scandalous. Because Plato, the famous philosopher in this time and still today, he talked about these two realities. He said that there is a world of forms which is that spiritual reality where everything is in its perfect state, the world of forms. And then there's our physical world, which is a shadow or a reflection of the world of forms, but never the two shall meet. Never the two shall meet. That this world and us as people, we are corrupted, we are flawed, because we are only a shadow of the spiritual realm. We're a reflection, but a flawed one. And so for, for the Greeks and then for the Romans, they would have not asserted that God was dead. They would have said that God is debatable. Who is God? What is God? There's many different gods. That's why they had the word logos. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, which means divine reason. There's something maybe bigger and ordering and holding all things together and giving meaning. And so they would assert God's debatable, but the very concept of God is removed from this world completely. And so we as human beings, as mankind, we are a blank slate to kind of frame and form ourselves around our own purpose and fine-tune ourselves. There was so much effort put into fine-tuning mankind both your physical nature and your mental nature in the Greco-Roman world. And what it led to was hopelessness. No wonder. Nothing that was awe-inspiring. In fact, the philosophers, they would philosophize and they would write mostly about political and social realities. So they would write about how government should be run 
and the best form of governments and the way that things should be orchestrated. Why? Because people were hoping in the empires that they were a part of. They were hoping in the rise of the Roman Empire. They were hoping in the institutions that were set forth. They were hoping in the social climate and the social realities that were placed before them because they had no sense of wonder. And then John says, let me shatter all of that. Let me give you something to be inspired by, to bring about wonder in your heart. The Word, the Logos, the Divine, has become flesh, became flesh, and dwelt among us. God became flesh and lived here, here in our place, in our world. The Creator comes to His creation. See, the incarnation of Jesus, which is what John is speaking about, Jesus, the Word, becoming flesh and dwelling with us, the incarnation should bring about such a deep sense of wonder. A deep sense of wonder. C.S. Lewis, the author and theologian, says that the incarnation, God becoming flesh, is the grand miracle. It is the grand miracle from which every other miracle in Jesus' life flows from. Because unless Jesus is God in the flesh, every other miracle performed loses the weight of glory held and contained within it. And so this event, this statement as shocking as it was for the Greco-Roman people reading it, as shocking as it is for us, it should bring about wonder because it is the grand miracle. And I want to stop for a second because when we think about the incarnation, when you think about the Christmas story, Jesus being born of Mary, a virgin, placed in a manger, the animals around, Joseph is there, and the shepherds come, and the the wise men come later bringing gifts, the angels are singing. When you consider the incarnation, is your response, of course, of course God became flesh, because it shouldn't be. You see, if you really understand who God is and who Jesus is, when you can, when you contemplate the incarnation of the Word becoming flesh and dwelling with us, your response should be, that is astounding. It's not of course. It's how could God become flesh. That brings about a sense of mystery, a sense of wonder. Tim Keller has a a great quote pastor and theologian, and he says this, wonder is the test if you know the love of God. There's no, sure I'm a Christian, of course I am. It's a wonder and a miracle anyone is. I love that. There's no, sure I'm a Christian, of course I am. 
It is a miracle that anyone is a Christian. And so when you think about the incarnation, it is not, of course, Jesus is God in the flesh. It is a miracle that God would become flesh that should bring about a sense of wonder. And I want to ask a question. When you think about the Christmas story, when you spend time in Advent every year awaiting that Christmas Eve service where we celebrate the Word becoming flesh, what do you think about? Do you consider the poor conditions into which Jesus was born? Do you consider the courage of Mary, the faithfulness of Joseph? Do you think about the shepherds and how shocked they were when the angels show up? Do you consider the wise men who followed this star for years, carrying peculiar gifts to bring to Jesus? See, those are important things to contemplate. There are things that speak truth and they give color to our faith. But what should astound us? And what should be the foundation of, Christ, of Christmas is the wonder that God became flesh, the incarnation, that grand miracle that God became one of us. He became one of us. Just think about that for a second. Just say it out loud in your house or in your car. If you're listening on headphones and someone else is next to you, they may think it's peculiar. But just say, God became one of us. Just say it out of your mouth and see how it feels. It's astounding. It's shocking. The creator of the universe became one of us. He entered into his own universe. And that reality has massive effects. Has massive effects on your faith and your life. And there's three of them I want to highlight. That the incarnation, that grand miracle of God becoming flesh, becoming one of us, how it should affect you. And the first thing is this. It should inform you that you matter to God. That you matter to God. Why would, why, why would the incarnation of God becoming flesh inform you that you matter to God? Well, because if God didn't want anything to do with things that were fleshy or anything of the world or you, he would never have become a human. He would never have allowed himself to become flesh. If he was like, I'm done with this whole creation, it's too broken, I'm done with these people, they don't really matter to me, I'll figure out a different way, he would never have become one of us, and yet he did. See, you are his creation, and he cares for you. He cares for you so much that he became like you. He humbled himself, the God of the universe, to become like you so that you can know in the midst of your pain and in the midst of your frustration, in the midst of the brokenness that is happening within you and the brokenness that is around you and affecting you, that God cares about it. Because if he didn't care about it, he never would have come here. If he didn't care about your pain, 
and your suffering and your brokenness or the brokenness that you see around you and in your world, it would never have come, but yet he came. Because you matter. You matter to God. I like to think of it like this. This may be a little bit of a weird analogy, but we're going to go with it. Imagine that God is, or Jesus, God in the flesh, is a bodybuilder. Something I will never be because I can't drink a gallon of water every single day. Imagine that Jesus is a bodybuilder and that he's holding a baby. Now, that is like kind of a shocking visual to imagine, a world-class bodybuilder who has all of this power and all of this strength and can flip over cars and lift the entire rack of weights. So much strength, so much power, so much force holding a newborn, delicate baby. The, the bodybuilder, to hold the baby, has to contain all of its power. The bodybuilder doesn't lose the power, but contains it so that the baby can be held and cradled and cared for. You see, the God of the universe, with infinite power, humbled himself contained that power and became a man. Jesus became a baby. A very emblem of someone who was powerless. But he wasn't powerless. It just was contained. Why? Because he became one of us to remind us from his incarnation, his birth to his entire life, that we matter to him. That you matter. You matter to God. And the second thing that we see here in the incarnation is that God understands you. One, you matter to God, but secondly, God understands you. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. Here's what it says. For we do not have a high priest, speaking about Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. See, God understands you because he became like you. God understands your weakness. He understands what you're tempted by because he was tempted in every way. He can sympathize, empathize with your pain and with the brokenness that you experience and with the, the anxiety and with the fear and with the pressure because he came to this world. See, we can draw near to God. Why? Because he drew near to us by becoming like us. Every dark place that you have been in your life, God has been there with you. Every battle you're fighting, you're not fighting alone. Jesus stands with you. God understands you. You may feel like God is so distant and so far away, but he is actually very near. 
and He understands your pain. He sympathizes with you. There's a great poem, and I want to read just a short little excerpt from this this poem because I think it is so powerful. It's called Jesus of the Scars. It says this, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. You see, why can God understand you? Because he had wounds just like you. He allowed himself to face humiliation and mockery and beating. He was outcasted, oppressed, pushed down, overlooked, doubted. God has wounds. He understands your wounds too. He can sympathize with you. And so guess what? That means that in the midst of your pain and when you are feeling the weight of those wounds in your life, you can draw near to God with confidence because He already drew near to you. He understands. He's with you. You matter to Him and He understands you. And the third thing is that not only do you matter to God and does God understand you, but you can understand God. You can understand God. Why? Because Jesus is the reflection of God the Father. Look at verse 14, the second half of it. It says, And we have seen His glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Maybe you've asked the question before, you know, what is God like? What is God like? He's like Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the reflection of the Father. You want to know who God is? Look to Jesus. Who is Jesus? He is merciful, not angry. He is humble, not proud. He is generous, not stingy. He is strong, but not forceful. He is compassionate, not condemning. He is full of grace and truth. That's who God is. You see who God is in the person of Christ. I've heard this analogy before, and it rings true to me because it is something that I've recently gotten into, which is a fish tank. I have two fish tanks now because Amazon sent me an extra one by accident, so they didn't want me to return it, so I have two. One in my office at Pipeline in Brickell, and one at home. And they're small little fish tanks, but I enjoy kind of maintaining them most of the time. And it, it, it's really interesting to think about a fish tank because there's a lot of work that goes even into a small fish tank. You have to balance the pH levels. You have to sometimes put salt in to kill out any diseases. You have to change the water. You have to make sure to feed the fish on the right regimen. One of my tanks has shrimp in it, so I have to put this weird powder stuff that feeds the shrimp. Then I have live uh, plants in the tank, so I have to give fertilizer, I have to use light. There's all these different things, and you have to make sure that you're doing it consistently in the right way. Sometimes when there's a problem that arises, you have to address it. Like at home, we have uh, a betta fish 
and the betta fish got sick. I could tell by the way that its body was like kind of moving. So then I had to stop feeding that fish for three days. I had to get a pea, a frozen pea, okay, from the freezer, had to cut it up into small bites and feed the betta fish, the pea, for 48 hours to help cleanse its system. And then it was fine. I'm like Dr. Doolittle over here. But fish tanks are interesting because they, they provide this kind of look into another world, the world of the fish or the shrimp. I've always asked myself, I think that's why Finding Nemo was such a, a great movie, what are, what's the fish thinking? You're like, nothing, it's just, it's a fish. It eats, doesn't even sleep, who knows how. But the fish has kind of learned, the betta fish in particular, has learned when I tap on the glass to come up to the glass and then feed the fish. But I always wonder, like when you walk up to the tank, sometimes the fish will scurry, you know, because they see this like looming shadow because I am the god of the fish. I am that force. I am that presence that is outside of their world, maintaining it in a way that they don't understand, that they can't see and appreciate and feeding, doing all of these things, and sometimes I'm this terrifying shadow over top of the tank. And I think for many people, God is viewed like this. We are in our world, we're in our tank, and we can't really see what God is doing. We don't really understand the fine-tuning. We don't understand how God is doing it, but we feel like God is that shadow that you can't really see and can't really know and understand, that looming presence questioning, are you good? What is your purpose? Who are you? And see, it would always be like that. And unfortunately for my fish, they will never understand me. Why? Because I can't become a fish. But if I could, then they would understand. See, why can you understand God? Because God got into our tank and became like us. He became one of us. And so that when we look to Jesus, we see the full reflection of the Father. We know who God is. We see His glory. We see His characteristics. We see His love and His mercy. We see His purpose. We see our purpose in Him. Because God got into our tank. He descended in became like us, and then Jesus ascended after the resurrection out of our tank. See, you and me, we're living in a a post-Jesus-in-the-tank time. 2,000 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. But the very fact that Jesus became one of us gives clarity to us of who God is. And see, in our faith, We believe that we are actually mysteriously and wonderfully united to Christ. The Holy Spirit who lives and resides within you when you come to faith in Jesus as your Savior is also called the Spirit of Christ. You are united to Christ. There is a union between you and Christ even though you're living in a post-Christ in the tank time. You can see who God is. You can understand Him and His ways and His character. And you can find confidence in who He is. And you can find purpose. And you can find vision. You can find hope. 
because our God is wonderful. He is wonderful. The definition of wonderful means exciting wonder. God should bring about wonder in you, especially when you are looking into the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of the divine made flesh should bring about wonder because you see that you matter to God, that God understands you, and that you can understand God. See, that, that wonder comes about, why? Because you see the glory of God in Christ. You see the glory of God in Christ. That word glory, as it is spoken about here in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. That word glory in Greek is doxa, which comes from the Hebrew word kabod, and that means weight. It means weight. We have seen the weight of Christ, the weight of who God is in Christ. And where do we see that most profoundly? It's in the cross. In the cross, we see the full weight, glory of God in Christ. And what do we see? We see that God is eager to forgive. We see that God is willing to pay the price of your sin and shame and guilt and my sin and my shame and my guilt. We see that God loves us, that we matter to him, that he wants us to know that he understands, and that he wants us to understand him. Christ was willing to give his life so that you could come to know that. You know, many of you know this, but uh, Jessica and I had very difficult uh, two pregnancies. And it's really hard to explain that to people that haven't been through it, that haven't had something similar happen. There's a kind of a disconnect. But when you meet someone that has been through something similar, there's a connection because you both understand each other. You see, when you come to Christ in faith, you know that you're united to Him and that you see the weight and the glory of God, that you matter to Him, that he understands you, and that he wants you to understand him, it should bring about wonder because you never in a million years could imagine that God would empathize and sympathize with you, that you could have that type of connection with the God of the universe. Wow. Awe-inspiring. Absolutely unbelievable. It is a miracle that Christ died for us because you and me, we are miracles of grace. There's a quote from a scholar named Owen Strachan. He says this, We are fully human, but we are not truly human until we are saved by Christ. I love that. We are, full, we are truly human, but we are not, or fully human, but we are not truly human until we are saved by Christ, because then we come to know that the God of the universe 
matter. He understands us. We matter to him. We can understand him. We can see and experience the full weight of his glory, knowing that we can have a connection and a personal relationship with the God of the universe, the God made flesh in Christ. Absolutely stunning. So what does the incarnation say in our times? Well, it says, hey, guess what? God is not dead. Mankind is not lost. God has come. He came to dwell with us. And we matter to him. And he understands us. And he wants us to understand him, to experience and feel the full weight of his glory so that we know that we can have a connection and relationship with him and that we can be full of wonder. I pray that you see that this Christmas. I pray that that wonder erupts in your heart this evening. And I also want to challenge you, as you look back on 2021, that you would consider what verse 16 says. Verse 16, John chapter 1 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in 2020 you received grace upon grace? If you had a great year, you're saying, yes, I did. If you had a hard year like most people, you're saying, I don't know. But guess what? Despite the season that you're in, despite the circumstances that happened this year, despite what you're facing even now, God is not done and he never will stop pouring grace upon grace. He reveals his glory to you. He reminds you that he is with you, that he understands, that he's fighting alongside of you. And so I pray that you can look back at this year and you can say, God, show me the small things. Show me what you're doing that I can't see. How are you fine-tuning? What, what did you provide that I didn't notice? What did you do? What did you keep at bay that I could have fallen into? Help me to see all the grace that you have poured out on me in my life so that I can look back on 2020 and say, I'm grateful. It's grace upon grace. And guess what? 2021 is going to be grace upon grace too. Because guess what? This Christmas... The greatest gift has already been unwrapped, and that is Christ, the Word made flesh who dwelled among us and who still dwells in our hearts and reminds us that He's full of grace and truth, that His glory is made known and revealed to us so that we can wonder and be full of gratitude because we've received grace upon grace. Will you pray with me, church? God, really, you do pour grace upon grace to us. We don't always see it. Sometimes we are just focused on what is in front of us. Help us to know that you are not covered in darkness, that we are not lost, that you have come. We've received the greatest gift in you that has already been unwrapped and unveiled for us to see. Would we be full of wonder at your glory, God? The knowledge that we matter to you that you understand us and you want us to understand you. When we look to you, Jesus, we see the full reflection of the Father. Build in us that joy, that wonder, that mystery. And remind us that we have so much to be grateful for. It is all grace because all of us, we are 
recipients of your grace, which is a miracle. You're working a miracle in our lives. And you already have. Root that in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.